0: The topic at hand is: Is Jesus really the only way? And the answer is yes. yes. I I did this to Connie. I said that she said, "What's the topic?" I said, "Here it is." And she said, "Well, just tell them yes, and they can be dismissed early (laughs) from class." You all pass with a one hundred. So it is. We 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 trust that Jesus Christ is the only way. That. Um, assertion that assertion will become more and more offensive. The gospel is already offensive, it's already like that, it was it a was hundred years ago, it was offensive it will be more and more so. So let, let's pray and then let's go into it. Father we trust in the exclusivity of Christ that Jesus indeed is our only salvation and our only hope. We pray that you would strengthen our own faith, that you would make our souls stronger through time of thinking about that and fellowship tonight, that you give us opportunity to rightly and graciously and firmly and clearly and truthfully speak the gospel as we seek to live it. We pray that you find our church faithful, standing strong. In Jesus' name, amen. So what you have to start asking and thinking, at least I did, is what is the what is the irreducible? Are you hearing a lot of feedback from me, y'all? No, it's just in my ear. What is the irreducible minimum that you can actually believe and be a Christian? There are a lot of things that you don't have to necessarily believe to be a Christian that you can add on as you grow as a Christian, you learn more about the Bible, you, you know the stories, you can uh, grow theologically, and you hope to have layer and layer after layer of good theology that bolsters you. And theology should not be dry. Theology, right theology, is, 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 is good for your heart. It does for me. If I read a really good theological book, like a Puritan, you, it's almost like your soul's eating. But, but what is the irreducible? So I've been thinking about that um, as I've thought about, is Jesus the only way? And one declaration of the irreducible minimum is the Apostles' Creed. How I many here from a liturgical background? You're Catholic, others, you're mainline. Yeah, you, you probably, I grew up in a mainline church in the PCUSA the Presbyterian Church uh, USA which is the theologically liberal side of the Presbyterian Church and in that church I never once heard the gospel never heard it what I did hear every single Sunday to the degree I started memorizing it is the Apostles Creed and the Apostles Creed if you go line by line is a clear statement of what you actually have to believe what is it that binds us together and makes us Christian or not Christian. So let's see if you can, uh, if you can quote it. Believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Let's just, yeah, descended into hell. Some people say that. On the third day rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, communion of the saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, life everlasting, amen. Did I get it all? Did I? What did I miss? Oh, Catholics had a little different, yeah. I got the most, I got the most of it. Lutheran's too. But you think about, okay, that statement, we don't know who wrote it, but it has been sort of Orthodox Christianity for 1,700 years. So to be a Christian, you had to at least believe that. We live in a day when you don't have to believe that to be called a Christian anymore. It's going to be important for us to find out what are the essentials and the primary essential of being a Christian or not a Christian is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is indeed the only way. I'm going to get there. I want to start um, and just sort of step in. You see the, the note sheet. I want to talk about problems. And get, before we get to the problem of Jesus and the problem of the Bible, I want to talk, first of all, about the problem with respect. Problem. We, we, are, we are people that tend to, to give respect. One of the good things about being a Christian is you look at people differently and you try to, pe- pe- uh, try to treat people with kindness, with respect. Uh, we do that. We, we do that. Why? Because people are made in the image of God. When I share the gospel, I try to always talk about uh, God's creation, creating all of us, and the reason we respect people, regardless of who they are, the reason when you pull up to a stoplight, even if you're not a Christian, you know people are made in the image of God and someone there is begging, the reason it bothers you, is because they're not dogs, they're made in the image of God. We respect people because they're made in the Imago Dei, but what we don't do is respect false religions. This is where we get, this is where we get in trouble. As Christians, we want to respect people. So we always do that. What we don't respect is a false gospel. My friends, you've heard me talk about Jehovah's Witnesses, and they, I don't know why they hit our neighborhood all the time, but there they are. And uh, I think it's good to have a conversation that is respectful of the person, but does not get us to the let's agree to disagree. Let's agree to disagree is... I respect what you're saying and what you believe, and see that there is some truth in that. Well, we, I mean, we don't respect we don't respect Islam. We respect individual Muslims, and would always treat them with respect. We don't respect Buddhism. Matt Phipps is at uh, Harris Campus teaching tonight on Judaism. We think that is an inadequate. One of the one of the claims of Christianity. Is is we hold to that there is only one way to actually know God, and every other description of knowing God is an actual false gospel. I mean the truth. So we do expositional preaching here Sunday mornings. And if you think about the truth claims of the Bible, what we're what we're saying, like this coming Sunday, I'm gonna preach. Uh, Mark chapter 3, and it starts in verse 22 and goes to verse 30. And Kyler's doing it here. And there in that chapter, it is this, it is Jesus declaring that he is Lord over demons. They accuse him of being Beelzebub. That's how he's casting out demons because he is the captain of the demons. And it's the whole blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Can I ask Kyler, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And in that passage, his claim is this messianic claim of godness. And, and, and if we take the Bible and preach it like that, the Bible's going to give us unbelievable truth claims. They're astounding. I say it all the time, that if I were a politician being sworn into office, don't put your hand on that Bible. You know what's in it, you wouldn't touch it. So what we have to do is think. The problem with respect, we have to watch our language when we talk about respecting other religions. We respect people. We respect people. We do not see the validity in other religions. For instance, this gets us to the next problem, and that's with truth. If I say to you that if you drink a gallon of antifreeze, it will kill you. I say that to you, that is the truth. That is demonstrable. You can go get a gallon of antifreeze, drink it, that's going to kill you. Now, don't do that. Why? Because it's going to kill you. That That is a truth. Now, I might come up here and say something to you that I think is true. My wife's spaghetti is better than what you make. I believe that to be true. If she makes spaghetti she puts not just ground beef ground sausage in it. It's angel hair pasta. I don't know what the sauce is made of. I never see it happen. (laughs) All I know is there's a really pretty nice woman that comes out with good spaghetti (laughs) and it's really good. Now that's to me one is objective truth. The other is subjective. This has gotten our world in a terrible spot. It's the problem with truth. The problem with truth. When I talk about the problem with truth, I'm talking about being what is objectively true and then what is subjectively true. And I'm afraid in our society, and now it's happening in the church, we're blending the two. What used to be understood as something that's subjective and really boils down to an opinion, now has become and risen to the level of actually being received as truth and competes with subjective truth. Uh, For instance, okay, so to be a Christian, to be a Christian, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14 says, If Christ has not been raised... Do you guys have that, that verse on your... If Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So if the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ was said in the Apostles' Creed, if He didn't actually come up out of the grave on the third day bodily, then Christianity doesn't exist. And if that didn't happen, then there's no such thing as Christianity. So what we're saying about Christianity is you, act, you have to actually believe that a man that died three days prior was raised physically, bodily, and lived. Now that narrows Christianity down in our city. In our city. I graduated high school in 1987, from Independence High School, went to play football at Walford College in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Walford College was a Methodist school founded by Ben Walford in 1854 prior to the Civil War when the Methodist Church had split north and south and this school was, was uh, founded to educate Methodist ministers. Uh, down the road was a school named Converse College. Converse was an all-girls school. Walford was an all-guy school. And the wealthy planters there in the low country of South Carolina would send their children, their, their daughters to Converse. And when, by the time I got there, only people that were there were uh, rich kids and athletes. I didn't have any money in my pocket. That school at the time had Methodist roots reaching way back into Methodism, but had been unmoored from truth. I mean, in 1988, 89, I was asked to leave. One, one time in a religion class, I have a religion degree from an unbelievably liberal, uh, li- a liberal, theologically liberal school, and I was asked to leave class several times, New Testament class because I came through Hickory Grove we joined this church when I was in the 11th grade and they're saying the Bible's true and if it says it here you have to believe it and so when in, in New Testament class I'm being told that Mary wasn't a virgin Jesus wasn't God and he didn't raise from the dead and I was being told to you can't you must separate the emotion of your faith and the truth of your faith that's just gibberish. That's what I said, and it's like, Mr. Presley, you can leave the classroom. <laughs> so it happened a lot. I mean, it happened a lot. Uh, and became a little bit of a joke, but it's depressing to know that there are people that believe that. That, that belief comes out of a church. What happens there? What's the problem with, with truth? In the turn of the century, uh, 1900s, turn of the century in Germany, developed a higher criticism approach to the Bible, and as you read it, you, you made the call whether or not it was true. Is there historicity to this, uh, the supernatural uh, part of it? Most of that would be taken out. That, that started to infect the American schools of theology. They were training the preachers for churches. It happened in the Southern Baptist Convention. Our, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, became a bastion of theological liberalism. And uh, there were professors there that didn't believe in the virgin birth, didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in the narrative of Scripture. And that starts to trickle down, and churches affect how we understand, understand truth. I, I, I checked today on websites here in our area. Just take, take our, our church, draw a 10-mile radius around, and look at the churches in that 10 mile. So many mainline denominations that recite the Apostles' Creed every single Sunday don't believe a word of it. And this is a problem because this gets into our understanding of what is objectively true, what is subjectively true. We're seeing this play out uh, with with the new rise of so-called transgenderism. Trans being other side. And uh, I said so-called because there are only two genders. There's no other or on the other side of gender. But that's that's being pushed into uh, schools. It's, ha- it's happening at colleges. Texas A&M uh, changed the word woman to W-I-M-M-I-N. So you say women, but it's not spelled so that man is taken out. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's weird. <laughs> I, had to ch- I checked it out. I read it. I thought, what? And, and, and what happens is, this is what happens when you get unmoored from truth. When you get unmoored from truth, what happens is you have to take opinion and it rises to the level of what you understand as objective truth, even if it's absurd. Like there's something instinctual in us when we see the footage Of of a swim meet, when there's six women and one man with a woman's bathing suit on, you don't have even have to be a Christian. There's something instinctual when you think that doesn't look right. But the society has taken something so absurd and elevated it to the truth. So now it becomes a competing truth, a truth claim that that we're going to have to be equipped honestly, truthfully as Christians. we're going to have to be equipped in our hearts and souls and minds with good theology, with you walking with the Lord, you're growing as a Christian, you're holding tight to what you believe, you, you, you're getting your heart ready to withstand. And it'll, it'll go from, from institutions to, to schools to the workplace. It happens a lot with, with big corporations. If you work for a bank, it's going to be harder and harder. All of that to say... The problem with truth is we have this exclusive truth that we claim about Jesus. I mean our claim is that if you don't have Jesus, you actually are outside and are going to hell. We don't say it like that, but that's what we're claiming. So you have the problem with respect if you if you decide you're going to respect others and other systems it's easy to fall into this problem with truth then competing truth claims become just as legitimate as Jesus alone. And that takes us into the problem with, uh, with pluralism. Pluralism. You know the, the bumper sticker uh, with all the signs that says coexist? I've seen that before, right? Yeah, and it has the cross and has the Star of David and whatever other signs are there. And the problem with that is that we actually don't have a problem with the idea of coexisting. Like we, we want that. Like the, the, the idea of pluralism, we, we would welcome that. Just as a way of living, we, our desire is to live and, and let live. We don't want to persecute people that are not Christians. It's not how we win people to Christ. Win people to Christ by sharing the gospel, by displaying love, by meeting needs. But pluralism is no longer coexist. I wish it would just coexist. That would be a really good way to do it. Because we feel like we have a, we've got a better truth, the real truth, a truth that that transforms with the Holy Spirit that does work. So we're glad to do the coexisting. But coexisting now, the pluralism now is, it has risen to the level of everyone is right. And of course, you can't all be right. It, it, lends, it lends its credence to competing truth claims and, and if you have competing truth claims to keep peace, you must end up in the area of saying that diverse beliefs regarding God and salvation are right. Now, look, I'm not saying we can't tolerate diverse beliefs. I think we live in a society that must tolerate diverse beliefs. I'm saying that they can't both be right. But because we respect people, we respect people, we, we live with kindness. We don't respect the truth that they have. We respect them. What we respect about truth is what what we know the Bible says. So you have the problem with truth. uh, You've got a problem with pluralism. That brings us to the problem with Jesus. There is a problem with Jesus. As Christians, the things we claim are true about Jesus are problematic for society. They're problematic because they inevitably come off as being judgmental. They inevitably come off as being narrow or being exclusionary. When what what we try to preach with the gospel is not exclusionary, is inclusive. Like I was going, I went to, I don't know, eight or ten church websites today that are uh, inclusive and affirming. Inclusive and affirming is language that says, we gladly receive you like you are if you are a practicing homosexual, if you are transgender or, or whatever. We receive you. And I think that it's, it's a hijack. Like I think that the LGBTQ and um, especially the homosexual movement has hijacked the rainbow away. Like if you see a rainbow now, your first thought is not the covenant that God has given us to never destroy the earth, that the goodness of God and the saving in the ark, that's not what I think of when I first see the rainbow. And so I think about the language, accepting and welcoming, that's our language. Like I, I'm thinking if someone came to Hickory Grove that was involved in a homosexual lifestyle Living as a homosexual, not only same-sex attracted, but same-sex living and open sin like that. And we knew that. That person came. We were told that person's coming to church. We are not going to stand at the, at the door and say, you can't come in. What's going to happen is it's going to be welcoming, Handshake, glad you're here. We'll do our best to make you comfortable and I- introduce you to our friends. You're going to love this place. Sing the songs when it comes time. It's it's welcoming. Now, the affirmation is not going to extend into lifestyle. The affirmation is you're made in the image of God. We respect you. The affirmation is going to be in the goodness of God that Jesus is better, that there is a, the most loving thing you can do is talk through what, what sinfulness is. And that brings us to the exclusive nature of Jesus. There is a problem that we preach every Sunday, that you believe about Jesus. I'm going to give you some, uh, some verses. I have lots of verses here. Do you all see that? Do you have them in front of you? Do you all have just lists of verses? A bunch? Okay, I won't say much about it. It's worthwhile to see some of the varied claims in the Bible. It's very exclusive about Jesus. I'll just go through them very quickly. The problem with Jesus. Here's the first one, number one. Jesus was chosen by God to be the Savior. Jesus, chosen by God to be the Savior. 1 Peter 2, 4 says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God. God has given us, chosen and precious. Now, this is an obscure. I mean, I didn't pull something out of the Gospels or the book of Romans. Get a bunch of theology out of Romans. Man, when I preached Romans, I was so nervous to preach Romans. In fact, I waited, you know, I'm waiting till I'm 40 to preach it. I got to 40. I Thought, you know what? Wait until 50. I waited until I was 50 to preach Romans. It's so, so rich and so solid. But here's something from 1 Peter telling us about Jesus, the exclusive nature of God giving us salvation that comes only through Jesus. It's a problem for, for a diverse culture. Jesus chosen by God to be the Savior. Let me give you another problem. Jesus was the only one to come down from heaven and then return. See, there's our Apostles' Creed. Do you see that? Jesus conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead and buried. He ascended into heaven. John tells us, John three thirteen. No one has is sent. This is Jesus speaking. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The the Bible's claims about Jesus is not just that he's a good teacher and a great prophet and one to follow, terrific example. This is where uh, modern-day preaching falls off. So, So what we believe about Jesus is the atoning sacrifice of Christ, that he takes away the wrath of God and gives us his righteousness, and there, therefore we stand before God fully covered in the righteousness of Christ and accepted not because God is soft and is welcoming and affirming. We are accepted because our sin is taken away and we're covered in righteousness. That's the gospel. Now, sure, Jesus is our best example. Yes, yes, we believe that. But that's not all he is, you see. Jesus comes, the claim is, he was the only one to come down from heaven and then return there. Let me give you another problem. Jesus was the only one to have lived a perfect human life. This is in Hebrews. So I try to find scriptures all throughout, not just in one spot. I'm going to end with a lot of the Gospel of John. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. The writer says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So sometimes you're tempted and you make it through. You resist it. Other times, you're tempted and you fall. When you made it through, Christ was our example, helping us. When you fall, Christ then becomes our substitute. You see, He he did what we can't do. And one one of the problems with With Jesus one of the problems of the modern church is not lifting up Christ not just as an example but but the one that saves through his life even with um, you know we are a Baptist church we come out of the history of the Second Great Awakening we we are the Baptist denomination uh, is really it has roots in the First Great Awakening but the Second Great Awakening informed how we do church service. There's a whole remnant of that. So the structure of the church service should always be out of the Second Great Awakening was man gets up, preaches, and that sermon is evangelistic and he's preaching the gospel, calling for a response, and that gospel is Jesus died for you. We've stressed that and it's a good thing to stress, but sometimes we've stressed that to the neglect Of Christ as our priest, Christ is the perfect man, Christ is the one who... I remember the first time I said at Hickory Grove, I said that Christ had earned righteousness. Well, it made one person mad. Christ was perfect. He didn't have to earn righteousness. And so it was my fault for not communicating it well. When I say the earned righteousness of Jesus, what I mean is, as a man, he lived without sin. And in so doing, he did that and earned the human righteousness that we need. There's a reason He kept the law. He kept the law for us. And a really important part of our salvation is not just that our sins are taken away and we're forgiven and the wrath is turned. A real important part of our salvation is Hebrews 4. That the the perfection, the righteousness of Jesus covers you so that you're not just a tabula eraser. You're not just having stains removed. You have been colored in. You've you've been filled in. You're not just a blank slate. Filled in with the beautiful, colorful righteousness of Jesus so that everything that needed to be done right, you did it. Christ did it for you. So when God looks at you, He sees the perfect Son of God. It's an important part. One of our claims about Jesus is the righteousness of Jesus. Another problem about Jesus... Our claim is that Jesus is the only sacrifice for sin. What does First John say? First John 2, 2? You know, uh, let me stop here. Uh, Sunday, I went through the disciples, the 12 disciples. That was hard to do. I just want you to know. I had more to say about those disciples. I've never gone through all of the disciples in a sermon. I was scared to do it. Uh, does anybody remember me doing that? Okay. Thanks for nodding your head. All right, well. Anyway, John made me think of it. James and John, the sons of thunder, and he wrote 1 John chapter 2. And this is what he said, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And again in Hebrews, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Jesus, the sacrifice for our sins. It's tough language for the modern ear. Even the word propitiation has in it the turning away of anger and wrath and judgment. People will say, do you believe in a in a judgmental, vengeful God? Yes. Yes, I do believe that. I believe that He hates sin. I believe that He, like Jonathan Edwards said, that He holds people over the pit of hell, and the only thing that keeps them from dropping into the pit of hell is His good grace holding you up so maybe today you'll come to Christ. I do believe that, yes. I believe that's what the Bible teaches us about God. That's not all the Bible teaches, but the Bible does teach that. We we'll also believe that 1 John teaches about the love of God, the, the sacrifice of Jesus. That Jesus takes away the wrath of God. If you don't preach the, if you don't believe the wrath of God, if you don't believe the judgment of God, then the grace of God doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. God's not sending people to hell, then why do you need to be saved? To be nicer? So that you can feel better? We can do that with therapy. It takes more. And and, and the word propitiation is we've taken away the wrath, and when wrath is gone, affection, the love of God. That's what the Bible teaches. This is what we believe about Jesus that he's not just an example or teacher or preacher. That's a problem. That's a problem in the world of Christianity. Used to be that okay, you can't really just call people Christian anymore. So we would say liberal Christian, moderate Christian, evangelical Christian, uh, maybe fundamental Christian, fundamentalist. It's the kind of haircut I got, fundamentalist. Now you can't even use the word evangelical Christian really anymore. I'm not sure even where to land. I feel like I always have to explain these are what we. This is what we believe about being a Christian. What it takes to be a Christian. What do we believe about Jesus? I'll give you another problem. That Jesus alone fulfilled the law and the prophets. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish but to fulfill. That's us believing Jesus did that in our place. He didn't just die for us. He lived for us. And in perfect fellowship with God means keeping the law. You know the Ten Commandments. You probably can recite four or five of them. Maybe all ten. And you've broken them. I mean, we've just broken them. And this promise is Jesus kept them for you. Not as an example. So if you'll just try harder, you can be like Jesus. He did that in our place. That's the earned righteousness Jesus. <clears throat> first Timothy 2 tells us that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Here's the exclusive nature. What does Paul say in First Timothy? There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So this gets, puts us on an island, an island of truth, but an island nonetheless. That we believe there's only one God as as He's revealed Himself in nature and Scripture. We believe God has revealed Himself, general revelation. That Romans 1 says that even those that never hear the gospel are held accountable because they looked at the sky and the sun and know there's a Creator. We, We believe, but we believe also the God of the Bible has revealed Himself. We believe the God of the Bible has given us Jesus as the only means of actually knowing Him. That puts us on uh, on an island. It's a problem with Jesus, you see. That Jesus is... Don't you love uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and following? Jesus is the only man God has exalted to the highest place. Philippians 2, 9. Therefore God God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess... Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what's funny is in Philippians 2, Paul is saying have this kind of humility and to display humility, he talks about the atoning work of Jesus. One of the the clearest ways Paul gives us an understanding of Jesus is as the second Adam. Adam. You don't hear that language much. We should, we should use it more. The first Adam sinned and all creation followed. The second Adam comes and lives like the first Adam should have. That's why Jesus is called the second Adam. Let me give you... I want to read the passage. Romans chapter 5. I'll read most of it. Start in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam... Sin came through Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam, the first sinner, to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. He was a type of the one who was to come. Now let's talk about the second Adam. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through the one man, that's Adam, through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The second Adam. You see what Paul's doing, the comparing? One lost it, the other gained it. Adam took us into sin, Jesus comes and, and gets us out. I won't keep reading all of it. Um, except to say over and over and over and over and over and over again, the only way to understand Jesus forthrightly and honestly is that He alone can save. That ties us then to the, uh, the problem of, of the Bible. Problem of the Bible. If you lose inerrancy, if you lose the doctrine of the Bible, If you you lose the narrative of Scripture, like the, the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA, they used to have a Bible. They used to believe the Bible. Lutherans, they used to believe the Bible. Methodists, they used to believe the Bible. Used to hold on to it. The Episcopalians, my dad grew up Episcopalian. My granddad was a part of an Episcopalian church on Central Avenue. I got the gold cross with his name on it that they would lead the procession in. They used to believe the Bible. If you, if, you, if you back away from understanding the authority of the Bible, then anything goes. If you, if, if you lose that one peg, the whole jingle thing falls on the ground. So what is the problem with the Bible? Let's just go through some scriptures. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27 and 28. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And then the beautiful call, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. The wonderful claim of the exclusive nature of Jesus and who He is, and the beautiful invitation to come to Him. All of you know Matthew 28, 18-20, it's a great commission. And in that Great Commission, Jesus says, all authority is given to me. It's it's quite a claim. It's the resurrected Jesus saying, on heaven and earth, all authority. Mark chapter 2, Jesus again. We've already been through Mark 2. Mark chapter 2, verses 5, 6, and 7. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, here's authority, son, your sins are forgiven. Now the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive but God alone? And that's the point. That's why Jesus started forgiving. It's a claim early on in His ministry. The same is with Mark 2. If you come down to John chapter 5, skip a couple of... Do y'all have these printed out or just listed? You got them printed out too? Y'all are just dependent on me to quote it, right? Okay. All right. Good. I like that. I'm glad for you to be dependent on me for something. All right. John chapter 5, verse 23. Jesus says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son... Think of the implication of this right here. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. These are our claims. These are the claims of Jesus he can't be a, a really good teacher or example if these are not true. John 6, 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him who He has sent. What is the work of God? Jesus says it's believing, it's faith. This is, this is our, our trusting in grace alone. We are saved by God's grace alone through faith alone. How do we get into heaven? What is the work that gets us in? believe in the one whom he sent. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I mean, on and on. I list, I listed so many, so you would have biblical references that point to the exclusive nature of Jesus. See, the Bible is, is not the Bible is not just a, a, um, um, a manual. In fact, I was given, when I was a kid in FCA, given a Bible that says a playbook for life. Playbook. I mean, I understand the, the sentiment. You follow this and you live well. It's true. But you know, you can be, you, you cannot believe anything about God. And if you read the book of Proverbs, Read the book of Proverbs. You don't have to be a Christian. Read the book of Proverbs and live like the book of Proverbs says you ought to live. You'll have a really good, prosperous life before you go to hell. You follow what I'm saying? So it's more than just, right? I give you all of these verses because here in the Bible, the Bible has one story that takes us to Jesus and how He lived. Now, certainly, once we are Christian, we are called to follow His example. We are growing in grace. We're being sanctified, becoming more like Christ. But the primary focus of the Bible is to to show us where we fall and what we need. that's Jesus. There's a famous quote uh, from C.S. Lewis. Y'all familiar with C.S. Lewis? You know, C.S. Lewis was just barely orthodox. And I love him. I've I've read a lot of his books, uh, Mere Christianity, The Abolition of Men, uh, and The Chronicles of Narnia. He he was just barely inside the bounds of being an Orthodox Christian, but he was. And part of him becoming a Christian was him reading the Bible and the claims of what Jesus claims. Let me just read you a long quote. Do you all have it in front of you? How how come you all got that? All right let me read it to you anyway. C.S. Lewis said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I mean, even C.S. Lewis, who stood right on the edge, would say there's no other way to understand Jesus. Either He is who He says He is or He's not. And the problem we have with Jesus is tied to the problem of the Bible that takes us to the problem of of truth. But we don't really see it as a problem, do we? We see it as glorious. We see it as that which saves us, that we gladly, gloriously, enthusiastically, joyfully receive the truths of the Bible that take us to Jesus, the one who has saved us. So it is not a problem at all. Is Jesus really the only way? Yes, He absolutely is. You join me as we pray and we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, we do thank You for the glorious truth that Jesus saves, that He saved us. We thank You for His perfect life, We thank you for his atoning death. We thank you for the victorious resurrection. We thank you for the sustaining of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the foundation of the Bible. We thank you for the community of the church, for the joy of being together, for the strength of worship. We pray that you'd find us faithful. We trust that Jesus Christ is Lord, and it's in his name we pray, amen. Thanks, everybody. See you next week.